Hey, howdy, fellas. Sorry I'm late. Happy New Year. Hey, Dan. Uh, no, no, no worries. Uh, Adam and I were just talking about the podcast. You know, our fearless leader, Free Press editor, Paul Simon, he called me yesterday. He had some uh, suggestions for the podcast. Okay. What does he have in mind? He'd like us to spend less time messing around, just get right to the pod. What? You mean like the funny bit off the top? All for sakes. I can't believe that all the hard work we put into this podcast, that's all he has for us? Doodle that's funny? You've got to be kidding me. We work our fingers to the bones to put out this podcast and he has the nerve to insult us like that? I can't believe this. Uh, Dan. Yeah, Adam, what is it? He also asked us to stop swearing so much. Oh, for sakes. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Negan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Negan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Welcome to what we are calling Season 3 of the Negan and Lone Ranger Podcast. Can you believe we're on Season 3? Uh, I, I really had no idea that we were even doing seasons. So <laughs> I think know. it's Adam's yeah. filing system. That's basically how we figure out our seasons. I just write things down and put a number on it each time we do it. So, uh, yeah. Happy episode one of the third season. I do, what's our shtick this season? You know, I just, I just want to say ahead of time, like if, if we were a BBC true crime, like copper procedural show based on the number of episodes we have done, we'd be in season 14. Well, uh, we're all we're already uh, we've got greater longevity than Faulty Towers. That was only two seasons. Well, there you go. I think that's a good standard to live up to. But you know, most seasons yeah, and we're we're fast approaching Gilligan's Island. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, gee, we're, most seasons start in the spring. We don't do that in Manitoba. We are in the midst of uh, a polar vortex here in Winnipeg. It's minus forty every day outside, and uh, we have reached another milestone in Manitoba. We are at the hundred day mark of Wab Canoe's NDP government. So uh, that's kind of a arbitrary metric, as we often talk about in the media, is what's the first 100 days? Politicians make promises in the first 100 days. And how's your 14 cents of uh, saving on gas so far there, Dan? <laughs> well, uh, there is no doubt that gas is cheaper. And for those Manitobans for whom that was an important issue, you can't say that he didn't do it. Before you go too far down this road, <laughs> I will observe yep. that on New Year's Day, gas dropped considerably. And the next day, it went up almost to exactly where it was before. Yeah. And you just think to yourself, well, now that money's going to the oil company and not to the government. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, that was one of the complaints, actually, that New Democrats had about this plan, is that gasoline tax reductions are a, an incredibly... Uh, inefficient and uh, awkward way of uh, providing savings. I, you know, in my family, I prefer driving less. <laughs> you know, like if gasoline's too expensive, then be a little deliberate about how you go out, you know, like carpool with members of your family. I don't know, like there's lots of things you can do. And there was also the rumor about the, if, <clears throat> if this wasn't going to turn into savings, at least for consumers at the grocery store, mm. which it appears it hasn't. Mm. Uh, in fact, the announcement yesterday was that inflation is still going up about 3% across the country. So uh, things are still costing more 
uh, grocery wise, life wise, rent wise, uh, that Wabkanoo is going to do something about it, but we haven't yet seen anything about that. <clears throat> well, of course, there's so very little government can do. I mean, uh, the central bank is raising interest rates. That, you know, was an attempt to dampen spending, which I think largely this Christmas, it seems that it did dampen spending. We, we bought less stuff that we don't need and are going to throw out by, you know, March 31st, <laughs> uh, at Christmas time. And, um, yeah, it's, I mean, the connection between gas taxes and even the federal carbon tax and, and the price of important things like grocery, it's so tenuous. Like the, I did a column where I, you know, there's a study from, I think it's the University of Alberta. It might be the University of Calgary. Sorry, folks. I can't remember which one. Oh, they're but all the same. They're all the same in Alberta. <laughs> as, as from coming from U of M guy. Yeah. <laughs> but the, you know, they said like the federal carbon tax is like, like two cents, three cents on a liter of gasoline. Like it's, it, you know, and clearly it has like a negligible, less than 1% impact on, uh, grocery prices. And to tell you the truth, the cost of transportation itself is really not the big, you know, is the big driver. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes along the way. The United States actually has a government agency that publishes a uh, an analysis a quarterly that measures uh, all the different inputs to the price of food. And it's fascinating, like where, like marketing is huge, you know, all the advertising that the grocery stores do, grocery store markups are huge. Um, you know, fuel taxes, eh, not so much. Well, the one thing that did came come out over the holidays that uh, is getting a bit of traction now, and I think that it's an issue on the horizon for Wabkanoos in terms of costs is that the north is getting more expensive and that uh, their avi- new aviation pr- prices just came out for traveling in the north. And it's more expensive. It's always been kind of tenuous comparably to go to, let's say, Churchill or Thompson or or any of these northern flying communities. But the cost now to travel is more expensive to travel in northern Manitoba than it is to go to Europe. And that's a kind of threshold that um, has always been kind of dancing around, but is now undoubtedly. So, for instance, to go to uh, northern Manitoba, it's going to cost you upwards of about $2,000 return. And uh Think about that in terms of people who are being medevaced out of communities for birthing. Mm. And I mean, this is going to be something on the horizons that Wabkanoo is going to have to deal with. But there is some pluses. Uh, The forensic nursing unit, which you've been writing about and researching, uh, looks like that's been showing some signs of improvement. So the healthcare system, Wabkanoo and uh, Zoma Asaguera as the Minister of Health has been doing this listening tour of of uh, the healthcare system. Just recently, they were in St. Boniface. And it seems as though there's a bit of a bounce back for nurses, are you noticing it? Well, I mean, uh, first of all, uh, 100 days, um, particularly this most recent 100 days, is really a bad time to, uh, you know, it's a a bad part of the calendar year in which to assess the, um, the worthiness or the work ethic of a government because between really November or the end of the, the very, very brief fall sitting in the Manitoba legislature, you know, nothing really gets done between then and when the budget is introduced. There's no, there's no legislative sitting. Uh, and so no new laws being passed, no 
no uh, legislative assembly, uh, you know, uh, agenda. So I think that, you know, you have to look for bits and pieces, little collateral signs about whether the government is is doing things that they're doing. We mentioned the gas tax. One of the other things, though, that they've done is, and this was a, a nagging story for the Tories, uh, the forensic uh, nursing program, the, the sexual assault nursing examiner program at Health Sciences Center uh, be, uh, under the Tories became, uh, basically, it was abandoned. Uh, the And these are the nurses who treat and support uh the victims of sexual assault and also help to, you know, to collect the evidence that's necessary for uh, police investigations. And um, uh, there are six full-time equivalent positions there. They have been filled. Now that, that is an important sign. It's not, that hasn't solved the problem. There are still, there's still a deficit of training because uh, they need specialized training. So the, the new government, NEP government, has its work cut out for it. But what I thought was interesting was that nurses abandoned this program, be, you know, in, essentially in protest uh, of the progressive conservative government. And now some nurses, maybe some of the same nurses, we don't know for sure, have come back. And just the fact that they would come back into the public system, back into this important program, is probably a semi-positive sign. Oh, and then if you think back to when Wabkin was on this show, um, he said that the most important change that needs to take place is culture. It's not uh, X number of dollars that needs to go in, but it needs to be around an attitude. And so this may be a sign that there's a bit of a belief system uh, within the nursing profession around changes of this government. You know, I will tell you this, that um, over the holidays at the University of Manitoba, uh, we were we did receive the settlement checks from the uh, dispute way back in 2016. Right, um, the and penalties that the, the uh, yeah. that uh, Brian Pallister had put us on strike, and so finally, uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars that were paid for an unjust strike, never a strike that should have never taken place, because the government invited the university to lie. Uh, to the faculty union and was found guilty for that. Uh, the f- there is kind of a beginning of a shift in culture within particular segments of Manitoba in seeing good or bad. This government is having a bit of a culture shift when it comes to certain industries in education, uh, in nursing. And I think on the horizon, um, other aspects and other unions, uh, for the mere sake, the NDP maybe has relationships that are different, may look different, especially when there's labor negotiations taking place. I mean, that is yet to be seen. As I think we've said many times that uh, the rubber will really hit the road when the disputes come up, when people disagree, because at the moment it's a bit of a honeymoon period. Yeah, a honeymoon. And I mean, it, like this, I'm definitely showing my age here, but I do remember the 99 transition when uh, Gary Dewar's New Democrats came in after an extended period of government by uh, Gary Filman's uh, Progressive Conservatives. And, you know, there are, I think there are high expectations uh, among public, public sector unions that they're going to get uh, everything that they want. Um, I, I don't know uh, that that's really fair. And quite frankly, the NDP has shown an ability not only to push back against public sector unions when it needs to, but manage... Um, internal party politics 
some public sector unions, but not all, are actually have official standing in the New Democratic Party. They get automatic delegates to uh, policy conventions and leadership conventions. So, uh, you know, those can be important tools to nudge government. But uh, at least Gary Dewar was very successful at uh, keeping expectations among the unions, uh, you know, realistic. Now, whether Wab Canoe, Wab Canoe doesn't have uh, a, a history with public sector unions the way Gary Dewar did. He was a union leader at one point. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, and, uh, you know, like, and I think this is uh, a good segue into, you know, you talked about when the rubber meets the road for Wab and the new government. Uh, and just parenthetically, do you find yourself referring to Wab not as the premier, but as Wab, like we talk about share is share, like just one name? It's, <laughs> you know, like it, it's, is it okay to like, you know, he's, he's, he's the first minister of Manitoba. Can we just say Wab? Are we, can we do that? I think friend of the podcast. This is a critical moment. This is a tipping moment in the podcast. Yeah. Uh, premier Canoe. I know that I first, when I'm outside of Manitoba, I say Premier Canoe. When yeah. it's inside Manitoba, I say Wab. Okay, so... I wonder what um, that's about. I think it might be because I think we're so used to him uh, referring to himself in his famous, how do you do, I'm Wab Canoe. Uh, I think he kind of introduced himself to the public as this one named figure as okay. well. So it's his fault. That's good. That's all I need to know. <laughs> right. if, if we're looking for house style on this, I yeah. would say that uh, generally in the first mention of any person, you use their title and thereafter you can go with whatever's most appropriate or comfortable. Yeah. I seem to remember that with the former Premier, she was referred to as the Premier and then further in conversation as Heather. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and Tories always said Heather. Like that was... Together you know, with Heather. Like Cher. This is this is worth more research. You know, um, I want to talk about I can't one even thing. remember what... No, I remember what... No, I remember what I was going to do. Is It's the budget. <laughs> it is the budget. Sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. a segue. Yeah, I was going to say, like, yeah, that wasn't a segue. That was, like, me reaching out and grabbing the train that was going in the opposite direction. I was oh, about yeah, to say, minute, we is going, this about the budget? Yeah, this is. Okay, so, you know, uh, not really much of an agenda, an official agenda, until the budget, February, March. Um, uh, that's when the... New NDP government will really get to demonstrate uh, its uh, acumen, uh, you know, the, the the finer points of governing. Because it's going to be, you know, it's going to be especially uh, fiscally a pretty challenging, uh, a challenge, challenging challenge. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, but yet in the you know, you can also see the legwork being done, right? Um, that heading up to what this budget's going to look like. I mean, in December, when we were off, uh, recovering from the election, we frequently were writing in our pieces at the Free Press about the NDP beginning to sort of set the stage for um, a fiscal legacy that may be somewhat tempered. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that the real issue here is... W w well, they talked about first off of finding savings or finding money, I think $123 million. But then they also brought up the aspect that there's more money committed, more money spent than that had previously been indicated. 
by the Stephenson government. I think that budget that's coming that you're talking about will be a real litmus test as to whether uh, Wab Canoe is going to start to try to temper these very lofty expectations that people all across the board will have, particularly public sector unions, uh, that this will be a kind of a free-for-all NDP government that um, I think the kind of stereotypes that NDP governments often have. But it's also led to a kind of the first jabs from the conservatives to be able to say, oh, well, you're just blaming us for something that you're already preparing to do or that you're, yeah, we didn't, you know, we fiscally knew exactly what we were doing and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the, the, the you know, the about a month after the election, um, the finance minister, Adrian Sala and uh, Premier Wab Canoe, uh held a news conference where they announced that the deficit left by the PC government was actually $1.6 billion, which is would be the largest non-pandemic, non-natural disaster year deficit in Manitoba history. Now, uh, to be fair, um, and this is the same for any government, we won't know for sure what the deficit was uh, at the end of the most recent uh, uh, fiscal year, which would have been 22-23. We won't know what that is until August, September, when the public accounts come out. And that is the audited financial statement of the government of Manitoba. And if it's different, if the (laughs) the deficit is different than $1.6 billion by a substantial material amount, I won't be entirely shocked. Um, but there are like, you know, there, to me, there's, you know, a couple of real wild cards in the mix. Number one, uh, the premier has committed to keeping, uh, all of the Tory tax cuts, particularly the, uh, property tax, increased property tax rebate, which is extremely expensive. And, um, you know, and, and just the, the fact that he's keeping that, uh, is a source of some concern within the, uh, the new democratic party. Uh, the second thing is then on top of that, he did the gas tax holiday. So that's given away more money that, that, and remember, like tax cuts didn't save the PC government. It's unlikely they're going to build a lot of support for the new government. Uh, so what's, what's a, a new NDP premier going to do? Well, you, you stand back with a catcher's mitt and you wait and you let the federal government throw you a big, fat, hairy transfer payment. So I don't know how many people followed this, but so transfers come for healthcare, they come for for social services and post-secondary education, and then there's equalization. And that is the amount of money that is redistributed from richer, uh, resource-rich provinces to uh, less rich provinces. So we got in equalization, 840 million additional dollars. To put that into perspective- Holiday yeah. gift of many. Well, that was almost in one year, uh, Wab Canoe is going to get essentially close to what the Tories got over three years in straight dollar increases to equalization. So it is a huge windfall. And, you know, the premier is trying to dampen expectations <laughs> about, about going on a spending spree, but essentially what it allows them to do, it's going to allow them to spend more money in healthcare yeah. in particular. And still bring the deficit, show that they're bringing the deficit down. And some of those increased costs, which are unexpected, like Manitoba Hydro, uh, we've got some deficit shortfalls that are going to be less noticeable as a result of that big federal transfer payment. 
Yeah, I mean, and it's only for this year. Uh, I mean, we're likely to continue getting equalization for a while, and I don't really want to get into a debate about the the uh, morality of equalization. Uh, but uh, you know, because like you're not a smarter government or a better government because you happen to be located in a part of the country that's right on top of the black gold. Right. <laughs> Texas tea. <laughs> Before we jump off, though, the uh, talking about the kind of uh, budgetary concerns and also the kind of legacies, I think, that Wabkin is inheriting, um, there are some still lingering issues from the, the provincial election in October. We ran a uh, story at the Free Press um, that there is a now a human rights complaint by the families of the four missing women at the landfill against the Conservative Party uh, that running the ads during that campaign uh, that were saying we're not going to search the landfill were a direct violation of their human rights. That's interesting. That's an interesting turn, I think, in that story that takes it out of the political realm. And I think uh, people have been still talking about the legacies of that election. People still bring up the kind of uh, racist underpinnings of the campaign that the Conservatives ran. And of course, now we have uh, Rochelle Squires writing for us at the in the paper and kind of giving us these nuggets of information Little inside tidbits. of the Conservative uh, election. Uh, the it, We'll get to that in just a yeah, minute. Yeah. But, but it's interesting to say that the Conservative Party is still, I think, in the echoes or the residue of that election. And it's a very ugly scene within the party. And, uh, I think it's really beginning to tinge this leadership campaign that's, uh, uh we've been dancing around the issue now for a while of like who's going to run for leadership. But, mm. uh, Steve Lambert, our, our colleague at the Canadian Press was covering last week the, the kind of issues around the leadership, uh, who's going to be able to run, who's going to be able to vote, how are they going to set up the, the election. We know that the way Heather Stephenson came in was so controversial as conservative leader. Uh, who do you think is going to run for conservative leader? That's that's the big question. Uh, will it be uh, Abby Khan? Will it be Kevin Klein? Will it be... I don't know. I, I, Rochelle Squire says you're not going to run. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> I believe that... Uh, the fever, the fever that drives politicians to run for leadership positions. I believe that she's recovered from the fever. <laughs> um, the, uh, I mean, you never say never. Um, and, of course, the irony with Rochelle, friend of the podcast, Rochelle Squires, <laughs> is that, uh, uh, you know, if she had been allowed to run straight up against Heather Stephenson, if Heather had not essentially used her agents within the party to cook the process to, um, you know, make it more expensive to get in than it was previously to have a shorter campaign period to organize sooner and wrap up all the, you know, support them, you know, the basically tilt the field. Um, I think the NDP were the happiest people in Manitoba that Heather Stephenson froze Rochelle Squires out of the out of the equation because had she run in a straight up campaign, I kind of think she might have won. Um, you know, like it, but it, could she have know. united that party? Like that's really the big question. Like, would she have appealed to the rural vote? One uh, could also ask, uh, what would it have done to Rochelle's career? Because. Yeah. It, it didn't really matter, you could argue, who became the leader of the progressive conservatives 
after the previous premier, they were being given a difficult situation to yeah. deal with from anybody's perspective. I, I think um, Heather Stephenson came into the job with very high negatives. Uh, Rochelle Squires, in fact, does not did not suffer from those super high negatives. Uh, and what was you know also interesting was uh, there are always a few uh, personalities within a political party whose appeal and you know uh, their uh, political capital extends beyond their core support. So uh, you can look at Eileen Clark. And the the relationship she had with indigenous people, which I, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think indigenous leaders genuinely found her to be good people. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. I, I know the, the David Chartrand was very upset when she was removed uh, or, that, or that when she resigned. Sir. I believe I remember that story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, the, that was me doing the head exploding, uh, uh, you know, mime. Um, so Rochelle had uh, really, really solid uh built up solid political capital with um women uh with advocates and activists with the indigenous community with municipalities uh through her various like she just was seen as very much the anti-palister uh tory and uh and in and we for sure all hands up if you think they would have run a different campaign. Well, I was about to say, like, there would <laughs> not be a human leader. rights complaint against the Conservative Party yeah. by uh, the families of women in Indigenous women in landfills right now if Rochelle Squires had been leader of the Conservative Party. Yeah, I, you know, like every time a political party throws a Hail Mary uh, or takes a real chance, like you never really know how long it's going to stick. Um, I think... Um, don't search the landfill and um, family values are sticky issues that that are going to like not necessarily among all uh, progressive conservative voters. Let's remember in, uh, you know, a, an extremely toxic and ugly uh, campaign organized by the Tories. They got 200,000 votes oh, yeah. in Manitoba. So. There's a lot of people there that were holding their nose, uh, you know, devote Tory. Uh, now, what happened? It's funny. I wrote my newsletter this week about this, about like, I didn't really worry about speculating about who gets in. I hate handicapping people, but we know Kevin Klein and Obi Khan are super interested. The interesting thing about like Obi Khan certainly is great retail politician. Uh, successful local business person. He was also, though, the um, really the face of the family values uh, plank of the Tory ads, campaign. Those ads ran in the campaign. And, um, you know, so it'll be interesting to see whether, but more importantly, obviously he didn't disown or criticize family values, and he for sure didn't say anything, expressed no concern about the, you know, we're drawing a line in the sand and we're not searching the landfill because that's the most responsible thing to do. Kevin Klein, on the other hand, basically disowned the campaign. Now, that might make him uh, a disloyal soldier, but it might make him a smart politician in the long run. And the, you know what the sign that I noticed that, like, I wasn't certain about Kevin Klein running. Uh, and then in our uh, sister newspaper, uh, cousin newspaper, other newspaper in town. Uh, he wrote an op-ed, uh, dispelling, addressing, 
undermining whatever uh, the claims of his indigeneity. And uh, that was something I didn't expect him to do, which tells me that he's thinking on the long term, what's my next step here? And what he addressed in that op-ed, uh, which although in a, in a competing newspaper, I still encourage people to read it. It's, it's, I think it's awful great that there's somewhere for Kevin Klein to go <laughs> and admit that he made a mistake. I, I don't he think he could have come to me, but he didn't. I, so. Well, we might have published it. I'm not sure. Yeah. But I can tell you that, um, this infuriated, it blew the head off of the Manitoba Métis Federation because essentially what he said in that was, uh, I didn't know what the history of my family was. Um, I know I've been claiming to be Métis for a long period of time. I still might be. Uh, I've still got to do some investigation. Uh, but the fact is that he's been, for years been claiming a, a historical He's been claiming a, a Métis community that doesn't have a historical connection to the actual Métis people. And you uh, wrote a column about the the uh, Métis for a day. What, what's, what's the slogan <laughs> for those? <laughs> well, what I said was, is that you can't just choose to be Métis on a Friday uh, because you've, you know, you suspect that you're mixed blood. Uh, that was my nicer way of, of putting it. But there was also like the, the, the community within the Métis community that he was associated with had kind of a oh yeah uh, like it, an a Amazon it, two-day delivery. That's policy right. Yeah, and, no, yeah. It, it, it's not a legitimate Métis community according to le the legitimate Métis community in Manitoba, the Red River Métis. And so, if you get a chance to see the social media outcry as a result of his op-ed, uh, particularly by Will Gooden, who's an activist in the Manitoba Métis Federation, uh, the big leader in there, um, just. A endless series of tweets addressing that op-ed, which tells me that if Kevin Klein does decide to run, that issue is not over with. But it no. certainly is something that I think he was hoping would stem the tide of the concerns around what his claims to identity has been. Yeah, you know, like, uh, I don't believe that there's any current or former member of the Progressive Conservative Caucus that would, uh, you know, would, would be launching a leadership career uh, or a bid uh, with only carry-on luggage. <laughs> I think uh, I think they're checking two bags and a steamer trunk, and uh, you know everybody's got a little something to carry. Um, I mean, again, it's not a general election, so you really only have, first have to worry about your your currency with with uh, Tory leaders. But in my newsletter, you know what I said is that anybody who's considering it ought to remember three things. And, uh, you know, number one is that um, in following like a governing party, following an election in which you lose and now you're back in opposition, you lose an incredible amount of intellectual capital in your party. Uh, staff, advisors, strategists, whatever, everybody jumps ship. Jumps, yeah, jumps uh, and, uh, you know, and that's, that's always been to a certain extent the, the rule of thumb. Uh, number two is like, this is a party that really doesn't have a brand right now. You can look at the news releases that are coming out from the PC caucus and all they can do is kind of remind people that, oh yeah, that tax cut, we did that. And that tax cut over there, yeah, we did that. Well, that didn't keep you in government. I don't know. So there's got to be, and someone's got to decide about how to uh, separate themselves from family values and not searching the landfill. Or they got to turn yeah. a hard right to it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Polyev strategy is, which as finds. As yet unproven. As yet unproven. However, the, we can't forget that the Maxim Bernier strength 
at one time in history was Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. Uh, you either turn hard into that hard right conservative Trump style right. conservatism, or you decide that you're going to go the route of the urban conservative voter. And, you know, Kevin Klein and Abi Khan both would be that more likely turning towards an, an urban one, unless they both decide to, to turn into some sort of rural face. Uh, the question might be if Abi Khan does that, then would a rural conservative Manitoba voter vote for a Muslim, an From urban, Winnipeg. <laughs> like, an affluent. And that, yeah. that is a question that bends my brain a bit. It's, going to be a fascinating experience watching the leadership campaigns of whoever decides to step up to the plate for the progressive conservatives here in Manitoba. It's also going to be fascinating to see the party grapple with its purpose and do some introspection and determine what direction they want to move in, whether it is going that little bit closer to the centre or whether it is going that little bit further to the right it, and on which issues they will decide to hang their hat. It, I, I mean, honestly, I don't believe that there is a hard right option. I think that an attempt to go too far hard right to cultivate support uh, in rural ridings uh, was the probably the stupidest thing that the Conservatives did, which was to further strengthen. The, those 200,000 votes that they got are skewed by the number of votes that they got outside of Winnipeg. The fact is, inside Winnipeg, they were increasingly uncompetitive with Heather Stephenson in tuxedo almost losing her seat. I mean, so that I think that that's an indication of the, the limits of, of that strategy. But the other thing I pointed out in my newsletter is, like, for anybody thinking about this, remember, the progressive conservatives, the party and the party membership, have no patience for losing. Um, you know, between uh, 1999 and 2016, they went through three leaders. Yeah. Only one of them, Hugh McFadden, got to run in two elections. And uh, so the, the, you know, the, the, the fact is that this party very quickly, like their expectations are sky high and usually unrealistic. And if they don't, so like four years from now, if uh, whoever is leading the party doesn't win the election, well, they're going to have to fight for their lives because somebody, some silly you-know-what within the party is going to come gunning for them because they think that, oh, my God, like, how can we not win the next election? Like, it's just, it's crazy. <laughs> well, <clears throat> either way, it will be fascinating to see uh, the leadership race tie, tie up. And Heather Stephenson, I think, stepping away uh, is indicative of maybe another issue. But speaking of surprising, I don't know, I'll even use the word shocking. I've been known as a bit of a pessimist. The Jets, yeah. at one point, for several days, more than just one day, like it was in the 80s, when I was growing up, is were first place in the entire NHL. Mm -hmm. And with a lineup that no one expected them to turn this good, maybe be a playoff team, maybe be a team that would be fifth, sixth, and then quickly get swept out or yeah. definitely um, in the past anyways, maybe make it to the second round, uh, maybe get lucky. Uh, and here we are sitting with not just the Jets in the top of the league, but also mm -hmm. Vancouver and Edmonton. 
Yeah. Uh, what's happening in the NHL and you as being our, our resident NHL insider. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about as close as it gets. There's, there's, among in this, this room, yeah, in this room of three people, yeah, you are the closest. Room, I mean, yeah. you guys don't even know which direction to tape your stick. So I mean, like, go it's, sports team. <laughs> go sports team. That's right. Hey, I played in. I played yeah. in the '90s. Um, no, listen, uh, and this is a subtle, affectionate. I told you so to some of my friends who are the hardest core and most toxic Jets fans in the well, world. Well, actually, that's most Jets fans. Yeah, no, so we're so them, used yeah. to being. But, uh, yeah, like it's. Uh, I always thought that I thought the I like Pierre Luc Dubois, but I thought the deal with LA was fantastic. And in Kevin Chevaldeos' time as general manager of the Winnipeg Jets, he's done this twice. You know, like he unloaded Zach Bogosian and uh, Vander Kane for a bunch of players that then became major contributors to the conference final series that, that the Jets ended up playing. You know, look, the, the reality is that every year 31 teams don't win the Stanley Cup, right? So, like, if you're winning the Stanley Cup is the only metric that you have for, for loving your team unconditionally, uh, I don't know if this is going to be the year. Maybe it is, but, like, who knows, right? But the point is, like, you want your team to be competitive – you want the games to be meaningful, like game 41, 42, that we're around where we are now. And you know what? Like, this team is uh, – my son, who is really the hockey expert in the family, he actually said it, that that Winnipeg, which has trouble drawing, you know, top stars, like the guys making 11 yeah. $12, 13000000 million. So we have trouble drawing those guys. To, you know, to have a, a like, you know, a, a really all-star number one line. But what we have instead is four number two lines. And you know what? Like, it's for the sake of the game, I really want Winnipeg to do some important things this year because I think it's, it's good for the sustainability of hockey in Canada to prove that you can be competitive. But more than that, in the broader community sense, this was a watershed year for the Winnipeg Jets. Couldn't sell tickets. Yeah. There's uh, losing things you know, pointed to a possible huge failure. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, there were those of us that when the team, the second edition came back, we sort of warned people, like, look at the history of Jets 1.0. That team was not supported until the very end. It did not have good support. And this city is, uh, you know, does not support, uh, did not support that team in a way like they wanted it to be here forever. So now they got in, even though hockey is so expensive, man, holy jumping. But you know what? You got to support the team if you want them to stay. And I, I certainly hope that their success has reminded people of, of that importance. And I also hope people notice that what has led to this season's success is European players. Like, I oh, you're going to go agree. there, are you? I, you're going to go there. Well, I just, I, I remember, you know, when I was growing up, and uh, when I say growing up in the 90s, you know, so 80s and 90s, uh, it was when the Jets tried to focus on North American players. Yeah. They always failed to get them here. Yeah. And who are the North American players week? I, I was in New York over the holidays. Okay. I went to a Rangers game. And it is, uh, you know, 
if you watch Blake Wheeler, he's sort of having a second coming. He's yeah, he's, he's, he's having a revitalization. Start, he's, yeah, he's revitalization. Um, Jacob Truba, like what happened with that guy? I mean, he he's turned into this major powerful force in the blue line in the Rangers. He's also become a bully. Um, like he's become this kind of leader, the captain that the Rangers have now taken and done very well. Uh, they just didn't want to play in Winnipeg. They didn't see the, they well, didn't see no, the, the, the star gonna, power. They didn't see the. You know how we talk about how we never disagree on the podcast? Okay. <laughs> this is so our one moment. I'm <laughs> throwing down right now. So Blake Wheeler came from Atlanta. Like he, he had, he was with the Atlanta franchise when it was traded to Winnipeg, the whole franchise, lock, stock and whatever. Um, and had the best years of his career here and could, he could have forced the organization to trade him simply by not signing new contracts. So I think, and I'm not talking about the, you know, there is a narrative that maybe holds him responsible a little bit for the, uh. It's about the last season's like turn back to Rick Bonus, like the whole locker room leaving Rick Bonus. Like look no, at the locker room now. I think that, no, no, but I think that was about. Blake Wheeler not meshing with the locker room, but not Blake Wheeler not being committed to playing in Winnipeg. He re-upped here. Like he, 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 when he could have not re re up you got to re-up to the system too and to the coach. No, no, no. But I mean, he could have just not signed an extension and at, you know, a, a few years younger than when he abs- left the team, he could have got a big payday, even, even a bigger payday by going to another team. And he didn't do that. So I, and I'm not, so I'm not saying he wasn't toxic in the dressing room. I'm saying I think that he show, he, he and Truba are different in terms of their commitment to the city and the franchise. Okay. Okay. I'll give you, I'll give you a bit, but I'll just give you a bunch of names here. Yeah. And we'll go with Gustafson. We'll go with Ehlers. We'll go with Fialbi, who's uh, Johnson Fialbi, who yeah. is one of the fastest players I haven't seen since Pavel Bure. Um, like, uh, Nemestikov, Nito Ryder, uh, Velarde, you know, also Velarde's from Kingston, Ontario. Yeah, sorry. That's right. But, <laughs> but like, what a trade with the Kings. Absolutely. Getting players that coming from a big market to a small market, they turn it on. I think that there's something to be said back in the nineties, back in the days of Jamnoff and Davidoff and, uh, turning towards, players that are over the other side of the pond, understanding the kind of culture in Winnipeg, seeing, uh, I happen to be in the same neighborhood as Nikolai Ehlers. And so seeing, I mean, that guy really loves the city and he really cares about the city. He yeah. likes the culture here. There's Connor, something to be Connor said. Hellebuck re-upping this past summer. Do you know that his, his agent is from uh, Steinbeck? Well, like I, how many NHL hockey players saw, you know, use an agent from rural Manitoba? <laughs> well, didn't, wasn't there, there, who was that guy? Don, he was also from Winnipeg. He was the agent for the guy back way back in the day. All those guys in the eighties yeah, yeah. and nineties. Yeah. But I, I think when you, when you got a guy that can show you the benefits to playing in Winnipeg, yeah. I think there is a, a, there is the North American player can see the benefits in here. But I do think that there's a bit of a formula here happening that's reminiscent of the nineties. Um, I hoping that it will carry them into the playoffs. Um, I'm hoping that there will be more success and this won't be the Jets of the past that do amazing in November and December. And then suddenly in March, we ask, where did they go? Well, no, for sure. I mean, like, I think that the most that the Jets organization can hope for is that they get talented hockey players 
who want to be here. And personally, and this is, again, like uh, from a lifetime of watching hockey at all levels. So I have a theory, but I have a theory that the Winnipeg Jets are developing, you know, they're becoming an organization where players who maybe aren't bona fide number one line players, but they know they can come to Winnipeg and uh, they will get a fair chance, whether they're on the second, third or fourth line, they're going to get a fair chance to make a contribution. So they're going to get more ice time. It's going to be spread more evenly. Um, you know, it's a little bit more of a meritocracy, you know, and where these guys, like, quite frankly, you know, um, you know, the Winnipeg Jets are not going to be the lowest spending team in the NHL. So if they're not paying three guys $12 million or more. Jeez, I wonder who you're talking about. Maybe. Yeah, whatever. I don't want to go there. And no, but, it, you know, easily, you know, what that ends up being is a little bit more for the guys on the second and third and fourth line, right? Where they're, they're getting a little more love. They're getting a little more ice time. And so what you really have is a team with interchangeable pieces and a, more of a consistent, like a, more of a commitment to the franchise. And once they're committed to the franchise, then that kind of opens them up and they, they see the value of, I can live like a king here. You and know? there's also like something it's... to be said about the way that that system of consistent players holding themselves accountable builds a kind of youth development. Like if we look, see the way Shifley developed over the years. Um, he was really built by this team slowly going from the third, fourth mm -hmm. line, building up. And we're actually seeing Perfetti. We're seeing Perfetti follow that same model. Yep. And if Perfetti turns into half the player that Shifley is, I would say he's actually probably already there now. Uh, that will be a great benefit for years to come. Yeah. And that was the sports segment of our That, that is. I, I would just like to finish off again with the use it or lose it. Mm. Um, if Bums in seats. Yeah, if you can't afford season tickets, save up, uh, you know, however you save up, and pick a game and go. You can get into – They did the have arena. a great deal over the holidays, the $99 there's, deal. There's yeah, you there's got, lots of great deals. You got deals, two tickets yeah. – for and you got a toque out of it. Uh, we actually bought that for our family. Uh, it was it's a pretty good deal because you don't have enough Winnipeg Jets branded, you know, clothing. That's why you needed the toque. <laughs> we needed a toque. That's really what yeah. We for it was for my my it matches uh, my vest, my windbreaker, my parka, the fourteen <laughs> t shirts, the hooded wasps. I was going to yeah. say with the indigenous logo. Uh, but let's get to the big ticket we've been, item we've been dancing around the whole podcast, which is the big whoa, thing we want to talk about. Time out, time out, time out. You know what? Um, along with my resolution, my two resolutions for the podcast, which is to be briefer in the opening segment and apparently to be less profane. The other one is that we need to be shorter overall. So show of hands here that we wrap up the podcast and not go into something that's going to take us another 20 minutes to discuss. All in favor. Okay, for I, those of you I, who can't see, I which put is my all hand up forcibly. Yeah, forcibly, that's right. But I think what we wanted to do is just sort of bring us back to season three of the podcast and get us sort of recovered since the uh, election. Grounded. Reconnect after the holidays, dust off the cobwebs, sort of ground ourselves in what's been going on in the last little while, and then look ahead to that elephant that's looming in the corner of the room that you'll have to tune into next episode yeah, to learn right. more about. Ooh, cliffhangers. And if you can fourth, look to see my fourth what is it that <laughs> both Dan and I have been writing about and uh, is a issue that seems to be just ballooning, but we'll have a lot more to say uh, we will do in the next 
upcoming shows. But it's uh, there is lots to talk about, and uh, who knows? Uh, very soon we could be interviewing leadership hopefuls. Uh, those, I, will you know, they come yeah. on the show? Is the big question. But the, well, they. You know what happened to the last progressive conservative <laughs> leader who didn't come on the show? I'm sure Do that I was have the to downfall. tell you what happened. I, I have a feeling that was uh, that was and, a major. And the part guy of who the came on the show three times. Well, the proof is in the pudding. Bump. The proof is in the pudding. Yeah, it's um, the bump. I, I will still just hope that uh, future friend of the podcast, Heather Stephenson, will join us at some point. If anything, the, just to debrief. The invitation is open. I'm, most definitely. I'm, I'm lurking most evenings at Vic's Market on Pemina Highway. <laughs> oh, waiting for her to come back. You're just wandering around in a circle with a shopping cart that just has two pieces of cheese in it. That's right. And a, and a microphone. I will just add, uh, before we sign off for this week, that uh, I want to just thank everybody. I've gotten tons of messages. I've taken a little leave from the free press. I'm still doing the pod. Uh, I can't escape from Dan. You wrote a book. And uh, I'm just working on this book right now. So the name of the book is Winnipeg Visions of Canada from an Indigenous Center. And uh, it's with McClellan and Stewart. comes out May 28th. And uh, I'm actually just still working on the photographs, putting the photographs in today. Mike Aporius and all the great photographers that we have. And also local Winnipeg photographer Dan Harper. is His work nice. is going to be in the, in the book. And... Uh, just, I'm just taking a little break off writing for a couple months. I'm leaving Dan to do all of the stories, and I'm sending all of the landfill stories your direction. Yeah, Dan's not amused, uh, of course, but he understands. <laughs> he is supportive, and he understands, but he is not amused. I think I'm sending you every single story that I okay. get from different people in the community. Perfect. That sounds good. Uh, thank you, brother, for coming back. <laughs> I'm around, but just thanks to everybody yeah. for uh, the great messages, and I'm I'm still around. And I'm just excited to read the book when it's published and have you as a guest on your own podcast so that we can interview you about the book. I don't. Will that happen? Is, am I booked? Am I booked uh, in season three? You know, uh, we'll have our people get back to your people. <laughs> we'll. That's right. Thank you, everybody, and uh, we will see you in a week's time. I hope. Miigwech, thanks. Thank you.